Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Heather. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about who you are. My name is Heather Maillet. I am an acute care speech pathologist at um, Evergreen Hospital in Kirkland, Washington, not new to speech therapy. I practiced for about 10 years down in the Bay Area and recently moved home from my childhood up to my childhood home here in the Seattle area to practice. So I'm kind of re-entering the medical world up here and, and you know, walked into the ICU at the end of February and found myself surrounded by a lot of quarantine looking suits and said, what's going on around here? (laughs) Wow. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So obviously you guys, I'm sure heard where Heather said she is. And and obviously everybody at this point is probably like, oh my God, that's where all this craziness started. So I'd love if you could kind of just paint a picture of, of what happened for you guys, because I think we're all watching what happened with you guys up there and, and you guys didn't have anything to go off of really. No, they, um, you know, we had our health directors and then the CDC came and I think just kind of each day things kind of changed a little bit. They're creating the guidelines as they go. And honestly, we had that, that was a huge privilege. It it was hard to not feel like you had any moment to prepare because you were where it kind of hit first. But at the same time, we had tremendous support and supplies. And so there were a lot of privileges that came with that, but a lot of anxiety and just kind of not knowing where to be and how to be. And then kind of just going with what you know, the little bits that you do know (laughs) and moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can you, can you talk a little bit about kind of what your day-to-day looks like now, Heather? Like what, what are you guys involved with? What aren't you involved with? Because I think that's so much of the controversy across the country is, you know, well, our facility shut this down completely. They said, we can't do this. They said, we should be doing this. They said, we shouldn't be doing this. And, you know, if you guys just, if you want to just share a little bit about what you're experiencing. Sure. Yeah. We um, are doing bedside assessment um, in all the units, COVID and non-COVID units. Um, We are doing MBSs in non-COVID or non-persons under investigation. So even for people who have a COVID negative that they're worried is a false negative, I still can't take those patients down to radiology. Okay. We we don't have fees yet. That's my project for next month, which is on hold. (laughs) And we have an acute inpatient rehab unit, which so far has been able to kind of maintain itself as a non-COVID unit as well. Yeah. Um, so talk about kind of how you guys are doing bedsides. Are you, are you, is it like your normal bedside or are you relying on the nurses for information or relying on the doctors for information or. So my bedside, I mean, I think my, 
I think the, the bedside is a lot more challenging for a few reasons. One is the chest x-ray and the background information I'm getting. If you just have a whiteout chest x-ray covered in COVID, it's harder to look and say, hmm, am I suspicious for an aspiration pneumonia in the bases or the right lower lobe? Things like that. You just, you don't have that. So that's one more piece of assessment you don't really have. I am going into rooms and doing all my own bedside assessments. So I'm in a unique position where I'm using a PAPR or CAPR respirator. We don't have N95 masks for the rehab staff. They're only for the nurses and doctors and some of those critical staff. So I don't have that guilt of is what I'm doing taking away from supply chain, which is really helpful because I'm really mindful of that. Yeah. It is hard when you're wearing a a PAPR or CAPR, especially the PAPRs. It's like you're inside a vacuum cleaner. (laughs) They're really loud, especially for your hard of hearing patients. And I'm trying not to stay in the room any longer than I have to, right? So being there, getting my assessment, being really present with a patient, making sure they don't have other needs. You know, I'm I'm spending a few minutes at the end. Just what else do you need? What else can I relay to the outside world that you may need? Yeah, yeah. And then I'm doing a lot of the legwork that I would normally do with family over the phone, you know, some, all of that over the phone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, have, have you guys started getting kind of like the post-extubation population coming through now? Yes. So we have been getting post-extubation patients for a few weeks now, which is really was really the turning point for me. I mo- mostly work in um, ICU, the step-down PCU unit. So for my ICU caseload to be zero for weeks was really, really hard, you know, just, and at first I was like, are they just not ordering us? Do they think these patients don't need me? And I was like, no. Uh, so I, I went, I went down there and I was like, just, this is a sea of people who aren't making it and people who are way, way, way too sick to do anything near me. And yeah, so slowly over the last few weeks, we've been getting more and more post-extubation patients. And those are those patients that are just really helping me feel like there's movement in this and that we are moving towards something that looks like a recovery and healing and seeing those patients start to be able to speak again. And we have a system set up so that they can FaceTime with their families Um, on iPads and just being able to be there and support them with that has just been really, really meaningful. Getting people back to eating, being able to call a family member and say, Hey, they're eating now. And yeah, so that's, that's been huge. That's beautiful. I don't know if I'm hormonal because I just had a baby, but I just was about to tear up when you said that. There, but I think this brings it back to what our our job is all about. You know, that's why we got into this to help people speak and to help people swallow. And you know, if we can have any part of this huge pandemic, then I think this is where we belong. So yeah, and I'm not out there also hunting for a vowel. So I feel like there's kind of a balance to be had where there's sometimes it's there's just not enough time and energy. How am I trying to say? Even with the doctors and their resources, I do find that sometimes they're not thinking about it. They're overlooking it because they're a little emotionally stressed and taxed. Not so much post-exhibition. I think that's more procedural and unpredictable, but especially on the more stable wards, they're not ordering us. It's just COVID. There's, it's just COVID. You know, it's not a pneumonia that could be something. And maybe because I can't do instrumentals anyway, I can't 
prove them anything. So yeah. although I had a couple instances where a where a doctor said, hey, they've been COVID negative twice, but we're just not sure that it's real because they keep coughing and having this pneumonia. And so can you do a bedside assessment and see? And I was like, well, they look fine at bedside. I don't know what's happening in their throat because I can't use an instrumental. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm not shedding any light on your situation other than the fact that I don't see them choking and turning blue when they eat. That's, yeah, that's yeah. my assessment for you is, yeah. Yeah. Have have you taken any of them to fluoro after they've been negative? I haven't had the opportunity to do that. And primarily because most folks appear to be resolving fairly well. And that once they've been up on the floors for three, four weeks and they've been eating a regular diet and they're not having any issues and their rest, everything's looking good. We're just trying to get them a placement and so no, we haven't we haven't had the capacity for kind of going back and doing any kind of nitpick testing in patients that have appear to be pretty much fully recovered at that point. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's or they kind of or they kind of shuffle them out to somewhere where they, they can quarantine. And so I've been doing a lot of recommending once you've had your COVID negative testing verified, please come back for an outpatient. So gotcha. outpatient clinic will be very busy at some point, I think. Yeah. Have you guys started opening that back up yet? Or do you have an idea um, of one? You know, I'm, I'm actually not sure. I don't, they're yeah. like in a totally different building across gotcha. the campus. And I'm not, I'm not sure if they have yet. I don't think so as of a couple weeks, as of like last week. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see when all these, when these patients can start to get some services that we all know that they need. Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess what, what else do you want to share kind of about your experience? I think that at first I was like really anxious that this population would, you know, it's like the COVID population. There's like, because the media just feeds this Um, and even just, on some resources and, and, you know, SLP news feeds and things, you're just like, oh my God, this is going to be this crazy enigma complex patient. And what I found is these patients are just, I, I mean, they're, everyone's different, right? Everyone comes in with their own issues, but they're, everything's just going slower. So it's, it's more of a slowdown rather than a catch all the crazy pieces that you might miss kind of a thing. It's like, you don't have your instrumental assessment. You go really slow. You kind of try really hard to monitor their breathing in the ways that you can. And you just, the, the endurance is low. So these are really, you just, I think slowing everything down was the biggest, um, kind of the biggest piece for me. It was like, yeah, this is just, this is a, a respiratory population that needs everything to go really slow. Their arms aren't working. They're, I mean, really a lot, I find a lot more dependent for oral care, a lot more dependent for feeding and all of the risk factors that go with those things. So I've tried to really be proactive in talking with the staff about, hey, this person really needs some help with their mouth, keeping it clean, and just being really proactive with trying to get a little more of that on board. And that's hard too, because the, the nursing staff trying to minimize their contact and going in the room too. So yeah, it's, it, it's just tough to balance. Yeah. 
Are, are you are you going in the room much or are you relying on, on nurses and CNAs to kind of help with that stuff more? For like oral care and feeding? Yeah, yeah. I'm helping with oral care when I go in to do a treatment. And then I'm, I think I've done a few meal treats, meal treatments, you know, for a lot of the more tenuate, like the critical, the post-extubation patients and the patients who are having a lot of respiratory work, they're just not eating very much. And so there's not lengthy meals and things like that so much. Yeah. Have you started more of, of kind of like the therapeutic things? Like, are you doing like EMST or anything like that with patients? Because I know that's been controversial because of the aerosol generating, you know, so should we be doing that? Should we be doing that? Because it, pro- it might be beneficial for this population. So didn't know if you guys had given that any thought. No, we haven't. We haven't done that. We've kind of been on more of a bare minimums trying yeah. to kind of stay out of the room. Yeah. yeah. And I've also had to kind of educate the nursing staff because what we're doing can be aerosol generating, right? Yeah. And yep. they have no clue about that. It's not on the list that they're given. So I have to remind the nurses like, hey, write the time because we have like a, a sheet on the door saying when their last procedure, aerosol procedure was. And hey, write it on the door because this is included in those things. Along with PT and OT, you know, Um, they don't think about that when PT and OT are mobilizing a patient or when I'm doing their oral care or if they're coughing or we're working on some exercises and eating and drinking, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. Mm -hmm. So I just, I want to back up a little bit, Heather. So were you there kind of when you guys started getting that first wave of like all those patients from, from the life care facility and kind of you know, what was that experience like, I guess, because I'm guessing it's probably something you'll never forget. (laughs) Yeah, I, yeah, I feel really have a pretty vivid memory of, yeah, like I said, in the beginning of walking into the ICU, and just seeing a large sea of people kind of in our ICU, you have um, individual rooms with glass doors, and walls. So you can see into the patient room if the curtain's not drawn. And when they have to keep the negative pressure room sealed. There's people inside the room kind of yelling to people outside the room what they need. And they're running a code, you know, on a patient. And you have, you know, the head of infectious disease there and everyone's wearing masks. And every single nurse on the unit is feels like is standing right there trying to figure out what's happening. And you just kind of, you walk in to do a bedside on someone else on the unit and you're just like, what is happening yeah, it was it was really unnerving, and and then the next morning that was I think Friday night, and then the next morning there was a bunch of news about what was starting to occur, and then because most of our initial patients, you know, that initial set came from life care, and, and that wave of like a lot of older and pretty sick patients, it's yeah. it's really hard because it felt like our first wave was just everyone perishing. Not everyone, but you know, most patients perishing because they kind of came from this concentrated place of debilitated yeah. ability, you know. Yeah. So then, like as we started to see kind of more of a slice of the general population coming in, then it started to feel a little more balanced. Okay, we have some people who are doing really poorly, and we have some people who do really well, and so that felt way more balanced. But it seems like, and maybe this 
I mean, this probably wasn't unique to our situation, but that first wave of people coming in is the people who are super sick and super compromised and were very susceptible to begin with. So that initial wave of patients, they're not representative of what what will be your caseload or your hospital moving forward for the next months. It's, I mean, and that was something that I had to realize. And I think it would be really helpful for others to know is that there there's kind of this initial wave to me. I mean, I don't have any data around this, but it felt like the initial wave was people who weren't doing well. And now we're seeing more people that are making it through. So good, good. That's excellent. Do you think it's, it's so much speculation, but do you think it's just because, you know, you guys, we might know how to treat them better, or you guys might have a better rhythm or, is just more of the general population and not the really susceptible debilitated population to begin with. It's probably a little of all of those things. Yeah. But I think because we had this like large outbreak come from this one care center, that's where it felt like the first wave was yeah. people who were like really sick like that. So I think for me, it was skewed because we had that initially. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy Heather. No, you're just like, what am I living through right now? Yeah. You kind of—it feels a little apocalyptic, and you're just like, I'm going to work, but I feel like I'm going into a war zone. Yeah, but yeah. I feel like I have a lot of germs on me rather than dirt. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's kind of an odd place to be in. And I think my partner said the other day, he's like, "Well, this is what you signed up for, you know, like you work in the hospital, you, you see people that get really sick. You see people die, you see people be resuscitated. Like that happens. And I was like, it's just feels different. This feels really different. This feels bigger than one patient or a a small group of patients that are in catastrophe. This feels so much larger and we don't have a roadmap. And when you feel like you're kind of the management and the senior physicians and everyone is also feeling that way. You don't have your, I don't know, herd leaders that, because everyone's just creating their playbook, you know? Yeah. yeah. I I don't think anybody signs up to run into a global pandemic. No, not at all. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) I I was actually, you know, I, I think everybody's, like you said, everybody's feeling this way. The doctors are feeling this way. Everybody's feeling this way. And I was watching the news the other day and some, it was an older gentleman. I think he's like in his eighties or something, but he's an ER doctor and he's got some health issues himself. And, you know, they were saying, do you think it's smart for you to be working in this population? And he's like, this is what I signed up for. This is what I live for. He's like, I've, <laughs> I've wanted to go my whole life to, you know, work in a global pandemic. And I'm like, oh my, I'm like, do other people feel this way? Like, <laughs> I think some people do. I, I don't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I, people do. Um, yeah, yeah. That's I know. There's people that have been like ready to charge in for years. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, how are you doing? Like, how are you doing mentally? Are you? I, I just can't imagine. I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it varies. You know, day to day. I think I'm doing a zillion times better mentally now than I was a few weeks ago. The first yeah. three weeks were really, really hard, and. Yeah just trying to kind of let myself feel what I needed to feel and meet myself where I was at, you know, and there's no wrong way to feel. And gosh, I didn't go running today. Oh, well, you know, like (laughs) I'm dressed, (laughs) you know, I think also 
it's helped me to clinically to just be like, I need to take a deep breath and be present with this patient. You're not a COVID patient or you are a COVID, but like you're a human being and I just need to be present with you as a human being and kind of let everything else fall away for a minute. Yeah. I've also started limiting my news access, you know, and driving with my three-year-old, I could, I started to be like, oh, I think this is scaring him a little bit. He knows where I work and what I, so it's like, in helping him, it's actually really helped me to kind of limit some of my news intake that's really anxiety provoking. Yeah, yeah, good. I, I can only imagine. Do you guys do you guys have a big SLP team at your hospital? So we have four full-time, no, I think would be the answer. Yeah. Um, four full-time SLPs and then uh, some per diem staff. We have an inpatient rehab unit as well. So we normally staff one therapist for inpatient rehab, one therapist for the floors and one to float and do kind of half and half if needed or all floors if we're busy in the floors, you know. So I'm the weekday floors therapist who covers. Yeah, I'm I'm the weekday floors therapist. So honestly, we've been quite slow. You know, we prepared for this surge. We have four COVID units, the ICU, our step down is completely a COVID unit, and then two stable medical units as well. And so we just, I don't know where all the stroke patients went, but I feel like people are not having strokes. I had like one stroke patient last week. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's just, it's oddly very quiet, but also because a lot of these patients can't discharge, like we're struggling with who will take them to discharge, uh, you know, the acute rehab units around here are non-COVID. We have had some patients recover enough to be COVID negative and then go to ARU to rehab, which has been really nice to see because a lot of these patients end up being really, really good rehab candidates. And so, yeah, we've kind of been taking turns, um, taking an extra day off here and there because we've been slower. And I think that's also been really helpful for all of us to kind of help mentally balance. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys do anything creative with your staffing to kind of keep you guys separated or to keep try to help keep you guys healthy or because I know that seems to be like a common question that a lot of people are, are trying to figure out how to staff this appropriately. Yeah. Uh, well, we have a few rules. Like it, we won't send two different therapists into the same COVID ward. So like I'm not going to expose two therapists to the same unit and we're trying just to be kind of consistent. And then we keep our acute rehab unit. It, we used to have it be like a walkthrough, like you kind of walk through the acute rehab or inpatient rehab to get over to the floors from our office Now we don't do that. We kind of go down the stairs and through a hallway and then back up the other side because we're trying to kind of not bring those germs through there. Yeah. So they've kind of um, changed some of our like public walkway areas for that. But, you know, I mean, we have one big rehab office, like some places do. We don't have a speech closet the way us do, but we have one big rehab office for all the rehab staff and we are just in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'd love to talk about what you said with, with discharging patients. Cause I think, you know, we have so many SLPs that also work in SNFs and in home health. And I think there's mm-hmm. so much anxiety for them about, you know, what, what are these patients going to look like? And I don't, like you said, nobody's got a playbook for this. Nobody knows. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it's, 
It's interesting. I know even around here, they just told one of the nursing homes, like, get ready, you're going to be taking tons of patients on vents, you know, and these are not nursing homes that usually take these kind of patients. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So I know it's going to just be difficult on the, the sniff end and, and the home health end, however, however these patients are going to be treated. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, around here, we haven't had a lot of sniffs that are accepting COVID patients and of course, inpatient rehab. So it's like, these patients can't go home. They're too debilitated to go home and get quarantine and home health. And so that's been really tricky. It's kind of a bottleneck, but also I'm really thankful to hear. I, through um, the Facebook group, I was hearing from some SLPs that are like, that are at SNFs that are starting to convert to have COVID units, which is really, really, really helpful because these these people need that kind of support and yeah. and recovery and the recovery for these patients is often extended you know it seems lengthier than what you would expect if there were their current presentation minus a covid diagnosis you know and so i think there's just a lot more need for that yeah so. i think cuz cuz i'm in new york and that was kind of what it was at first mm-hmm. it was like we're not taking any of these patients and then the government was pretty much like too bad of mm-hmm. like <laughs> You yeah. know, like these patients have to leave the hospital, you know, once they get stable enough, it's like, there's, you know, unfortunately not enough beds for new sicker people to come in. So yeah. there's gotta be some sort of give and take with the other facilities. Yeah. I, I, again, I come from a very like privileged bubble where we didn't hit our bed capacity. You know, we didn't have, our surge was like smaller than was expected. And so we didn't have that push. I mean, we, we did have some push, you know, because yeah. like you have to eventually get patients out, especially with ICU beds and, and step down beds. But um, we, we just hadn't, didn't have anything like what's happening in New York. Yeah. Yeah. So you said you kind of feel like you guys are, are hitting your stride now. Is that just that you kind of know what you're walking into now and, and you're, I don't think anyone can be prepared for this, but you just kind of a little bit more aware of what you might be dealing with. Yeah. I think, just knowing that I'm going to work in COVID units all day, but that's also not bothersome to me for some people that's really anxiety provoking. So yeah. like on the schedule, Oh, am I going to have a COVID day or non COVID day? It's like mm, every day, like, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. but that doesn't bother me. And I, and I think just being comfortable with the PPE and what to wear and when to wear it and how to wash your hands forever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> and I don't see as many patients. I don't know that there's anyone that hits their productivity the way they did before, (laughs) before all of this. And that's okay. Just kind of knowing that I'm going to walk into another email update, what's changed today, state of the union, you know, that's been really helpful. You get daily updates, like emails. And, you know, I, I switched to wearing surgical scrubs and scrubbing in at work and then switching out at the end of the day rather than wearing my own scrubs from home. You know, that, that was a piece that helped me feel a little better too. I think you just kind of know. And I think maybe because we feel like our surge is behind us, we just kind of like, okay, this is getting better, not worse for us now, you know, cause that impending, you know, when is it going to peak? It was a really anxiety provoking yeah. feeling. Yeah. But I love to hear what you've said about, you know, that you guys are making sure you help the patients FaceTime with their families and things like that. And, you know, as speech pathologists, it's part of our huge role is helping with speaking. And and have you done anything, I guess, kind of creative or out of the box? Because obviously you're in a paper mask, so it's not like you're <laughs> communicating like normal either. You know, I, I've heard of some people using iPads and things like that to help communicate with these patients. And 
I didn't know if you guys had, had done anything like that. Um, not anything. I, I did try using like a pocket talker to help amplify for a patient who was still really, really dysphonic from um, having an extended intubation and just once. Um, but yeah, we haven't had a lot of issues. I think they have like set times where the nurse will bring in the iPad and that's their scheduled time and their family's all on it. So, Oh, that's great. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I just, I've sometimes tried to be there so that I can, for patients who it's really relevant give the family the update that way. And then sometimes I try to avoid it so they get their family time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, de- it depends on the patient. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful that they have that kind of set time. That's great. Yeah. It's actually a really nice system. The family like calls in and schedules their time through this scheduling system. And then the nurse brings in the iPad for the patient at oh, their that's time. So nice. That's yeah. Nice. So it's pretty cool when you've got like, you know, this, this patient and his four adult children with their older families sitting on their couches on the screen. And it's, it's very emotional Yeah, when that's like all they get of their family. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also, it's nice to be able to give some really positive information and report on progress that way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. What else, Heather? What else haven't we covered? I mean, I think my biggest Anxiety right now is not for my own hospital, but for those in areas that aren't as privileged as mine. You know, I yeah. I come from a, a bubble that's pretty white and pretty affluent and pretty not hit super hard like other parts of the country. Yeah. So I just I'm I'm really worried for for those who don't have all the resources and that don't have the voices and are not in positions of power and privilege. Yeah, you know? yeah. that's the thing that I'm really thinking about a lot right now. Yeah. What, um, and, and like I said, I, I didn't, you know, it's great to hear that you guys were so equipped with these paper masks. How do you think the situation would have been different if you weren't? So if we didn't have access to papers and cappers and reusable face shields, I would be probably doing things different in my therapy. I wouldn't be doing as much therapy. I would probably be getting creative and having, you know, nurses support and things too. I I mean, it's not ideal, but it's, it's what you can do. Yeah. Um, At our hospital, we didn't get fitted for N95s, which at first I was frustrated about, but now I feel like I would not want to be using N95s when they're needed by a doctor somewhere or, you know, um, emergency room nurse or something. So I am able to be removed from that piece. Yeah. You know, those are hard decisions that I haven't had to make. And we have reusable gowns. They're they're cloth and they get laundered. And so we don't have a shortage of gowns. And, yeah, you know. I, I know. It's, it's awful. It's awful to th- when, you know, so many SLPs are saying, you know, I'm supposed to do this, but I have no access to PPE or something. It's just like, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, you can only do what you can do safely. Yeah, so yeah. that is safe for you and safe for your patient. And it'll wait. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I think in the grand scheme, there's patients that have been aspirating for years. <laughs> and, you know, it's like some of it's like, what are we doing rather than other than just calling it out that's yeah. skilled? I know there's a whole, whole argument around that. Um, yeah, yeah. But I also, you know, I think, yeah. I didn't have to make those decisions. And I think everyone has to make them individually. Everyone's kind of in a different boat and that's what makes it hard. There's no one pathway for everybody. 
And it changes too, you know, it's changing every day. Yeah. I I think that's what just, I want to stress so much because this could have been a completely, totally different conversation had you guys not had proper PPE. Oh yeah. And, you know, not have reusable things. And, you know, that's such a blessing for you to be able to have. So yeah. It's a major privilege. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anything else you want to cover, Heather? No, I think we covered it all. Any, any words of encouragement for the ones that are about to ride the wave? <laughs> <laughs> the first three weeks are the hardest and then it gets a lot better because your caseload is, is more balanced and, and you do start seeing people get well and go home. And even if it's just one patient the first week that it starts getting a little better, or even if, if things are still chaos, but you have one patient that got extubated successfully and gets to start talking and eating, like you just hold on to that. Like that patient for me was in my mind for the first week and got me through to the next week, you know? And so just know that we are a species of healing and that this is something that will pass and people will recover. Not everybody, but you will get to see the wave of healing that comes after this wave of tragedy. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Heather, th- I can't thank you enough for sharing your story and, and bringing one of hope, I think, to a lot of people that are feeling so anxious right now. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. I think everyone's just kind of giving and doing what they can. Yeah. Thank you, Heather. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank you so much to all of you for listening.